fundraisers like you are working to supply your cause with the resources it needs to make the world a better place. But donor expectations and technology seems to keep changing. At Pursuant, we want to bring you conversations that put leaders like you at the top of your fundraising game. Welcome to the Go Beyond Fundraising Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Go Beyond Fundraising Podcast. I am so excited for today's episode. But before we jump in, I wanted to let you know that this month we are trying to grow to 1,000 followers and would love your help. So take a screenshot or hit the share button to send this podcast to a fellow friend or colleague who works for a nonprofit. And please, please leave us a five-star review. Thank you in advance for helping us help more fundraisers and marketers like you get insights to further their mission. Hey, Nicholas, welcome back to another episode of the Go Beyond Fundraising podcast. You ready to talk? This was October trends, correct? No, this is uh, September trends, is it not? September yeah, trends. I've so, oh, yeah. gotten behind. <laughs> no, no. We'll see. We're always a little bit of a month behind. September will be coming up at the end of this month. So we're not behind yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also the, new, the news moves fast, but we tend to talk about the same things for a while. So we have some great topics today. I had a chance to go through some of the different resources that you've pulled together. And just as a reminder for anyone who this is who this is their first time tuning in to one of these episodes with Nicholas. Nicholas plays a very vital role in combing through all of the articles and reports and just trend summaries that are kind of floating throughout the different publications related to the nonprofit space as well as in the commercial marketing sector. And so we just like to kind of hop on the phone, you know, once a month and kind of look at what some of those trends are. We'll be including links to all these different articles so you can go read the full reports on your own. But we've got a fun docket of topics today. So Nicholas, why don't we just dive right in? The first one was around volunteers. Yeah. So came across some pretty interesting topics um, actually from the same author, uh, Ben Ghost. So one thing that he sort of wanted to mention and sort of bring up was some recent studies about sort of the lack of diversity within volunteerism. So basically, many studies have found that higher rates of volunteerism are among whites and more so than among people of color. And a lot of this comes from a, a, a few different uh, reasons, a lot of it being socioeconomic issues and sort of more low-income, disadvantaged communities not being more involved in uh, volunteerism in a more formal way. Not to say that they aren't involved in volunteering in any way, shape, or form, but maybe they're involved in more community-type efforts that they don't even realize or recognize is volunteerism. So essentially, you know, what this article talks about is that you know, 84% of volunteer managers are white, which is a slight improvement since 2019. But really what there is, is there's still these roadblocks that exist for people of color getting involved. And that can look, you know, a few different ways. A lot of it, just like I said, is, is more being involved with, uh, with nonprofits and volunteering in a formal way. And what I mean by that is 
you know, actually being registered with a nonprofit and recognized as a volunteer within a, within a constituent file or being asked regularly to be involved with a charity or nonprofit. And predominantly more white people are involved in that form. Whereas people of color tend to be more involved with, you know, these informal forms of volunteering. And so the question is, is, you know, how can nonprofits get more people of color involved in a more formal way? And I think one thing that was really kind of interesting is how do you welcome people in um, and make it easier for them? So, you know, one of those things could be, for example, like, just making it simple, having an online volunteer form for them and maybe allowing them to, to get involved with your organization through just a simple phone call. But I think a lot of times, and I've seen this in my own personal experiences, um, getting involved in a, in a volunteer fashion kind of sometimes requires a few steps that does take time. And because it takes time and effort, sometimes people don't have that time and effort. And so therefore, it's like, how do you dismantle those roadblocks and and make it easier for people to get involved so that they can really sort of show their volunteer efforts in an easy, more formal way? I think what a really good example that was was mentioned is there's a, a person of color, a woman who did not realize that she was for years, really volunteering in a, in a formal way, because what she was doing was she was working with her local church. And she was putting together a dance ministry. It wasn't until she got more involved with nonprofits that she realized that, you know, for years she had been volunteering. And so I think what she's sort of mentioned in her own life experience is, you know, how can nonprofits really welcome her and her community in to make it easier and more understanding about like the volunteer uh, programs that are available and, you know, how can they, they get involved? So I think it's kind of interesting when you look at some of those issues going on with volunteerism. But furthermore, I am, it does kind of kind of go into sort of a, a similar yet different topic of, of that, you know, volunteer programs are, are really starting to decline in, in their efforts and size. You know, basically since the pandemic, you know, a really interesting fact that came out is that two-thirds of volunteer programs have decreased. So that means that volunteers are stopping their efforts entirely, maybe because since the pandemic happened, there was no programs or events or services available for them to get involved in an in-person way. And since the pandemic has sort of ended, well, I guess it hasn't really ended, but now that we're moving into a more open society again, and things are, events are happening again, and more in-person activities are back up and running, a lot of volunteers have lost communication with the nonprofits that they were working with and don't even realize that there are opportunities for them to get involved again. So, you know, it, it's just the raises this big question of what, what can fundraisers and nonprofits do to get the word out there to all different walks of life, as well as even people that they already have connections with to get people involved again. Because, you know, we all know that volunteering is an important and vital resource for nonprofits. Yeah, thanks for going over all of that, Nicholas. There's a lot to unpack there. What's interesting to me specifically about the second point about volunteering, about decreasing their activity is, in my experience, so much of volunteering is building it into your routine, whether that is, you know, once a month, you have a, a like a 
community organization that you spend some time with, you know, picking up trash on a Saturday morning or doing building a Habitat for Humanity house. But it seems to me, again, just going from my own personal experience, that the red tape that's kind of always been around volunteering, where you got to sign up, you got to get up early, you got to drive, you got to like socialize with people who you may not know. Um, I think our tolerance for all of that, way higher or lower, I'm, I'm I'm at loss for figuring out which one it was, but our just our threshold for that, I think, was radically altered by the pandemic because our social bubbles shrank, but also just our like willingness to leave the house at that shrink as well. And so what I find interesting is that I think that nonprofits in order to win back some of those volunteers, I don't think there's a lack of desire, but I just think that our kind of threshold for discomfort has been raised quite a bit. And so it would be interesting to me to see how nonprofits can A, remove some of that red tape or B, just increase the awareness of the need. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I think that the pandemic, obviously, it's impacted so much, um, even more so than just volunteering. But yeah, I mean, I do believe it It really is kind of pushed people indoors and we've gotten used to just kind of staying at home. I'm very guilty of that myself. But, I, you know, I think what's interesting is uh, even in my own experience as, as a, you know, sort of training and, and managing volunteers in my past experience is that, you know, a really good way to get people involved again and excited about your organization and sort of get them up and moving is just simply thanking them. So, you know, that can be even as simple as a phone call or taking it a little bit further and doing a more welcome series for your volunteers, um, ones that have already established with your organization and have been volunteering with your organization for a few years or more, right? and also welcoming in new ones by doing, say, like a lunch on or, a, you know, some sort of catered meal or dinner just so that you can thank them and, and get them involved again. And in that way, you can also get them up and running and, and, and uh, make them more aware of what you're, you know, you have upcoming in the next year. I have found in my own experience that that's a very positive thing and, and can really get people interested in volunteering again. Let's move on to the second topic, which was overhead and budgeting, which you and I have both spoken about. And I think I've spoken about with other people. It's kind of a perennial issue within the nonprofit space. There was an article that you found that cited that nonprofits need to spend a third of their budget on overhead to thrive, which, you know, when you're looking at that budget sheet, can seem like a lot in order to be competitive and to be able to you know, fairly compensate your workers and to have all of the facilities and IT and equipment and training that makes your organization a healthy one, it just costs more. And that's something that donors have to be, you know, very thoughtfully communicated with about. Yeah. You know, I think any nonprofit and any fundraiser can definitely relate to this concern. I think it's it's very common to hear this from donors who, you know, believe that high overhead costs can sort of almost equate to wastefulness and and not really prioritizing the mission or programs and services that you are providing. You know, I, but the truth is is that this one study by uh, and and you know, I I'm I'm sorry if I mispronounce this name, but Paul Altmini and Kyozen Liu they 
basically found that uh, nonprofits that spend more on IT facilities, equipment, staff and training, program development, and even just fundraising tactics tend to be more successful than those that don't. And while you know, donors are reluctant to support nonprofits that spend heavily on these priorities, they do tend to outperform nonprofits that, that do not. And I find that quite interesting. And, and it's, it's really obviously uh, varies between which sector you work in. So um, obviously, there's going to be some organizations within certain sectors of the, of the nonprofit world that you know high overhead costs are going to kind of come with the territory. A good example of that would be like arts and, and museums and things of the liking. But, you know, the truth is, is that by spending more, you actually are providing more of a better experience for your programs and services, but also for your donors. And I think what's interesting is that through this study, they sort of talked about this, this really important thing that um, was new to me, but the starvation cycle is what they call it. So essentially what the starvation cycle is, is that, you know, because donors hold unrealistic expectations about running a nonprofit with low overhead, it kind of creates this cycle that, that ends up ultimately weakening the, the nonprofit and their infrastructure. So in other words, is by, by not spending enough on overhead, then it really does tend to hurt the nonprofit. And like you mentioned a moment ago, I'll, one of those really key factors is making sure that you can bring in new talent, but also retain talent on your staff. And I think you know it's it's difficult to relay that to a donor because a lot of people who donate they obviously are very passionate about the programs and they would like to see 100% of their donation go towards those programs. But in order to make those programs viable and make sure that people are able to meet all the needs of of the clients that they're serving, you also need that talent. So really, it's all about adjusting donors' expectations and making sure that you can sort of somehow, you know, relay to them that it is important that they are providing, you know, enough support within their own organization to then therefore provide viable, strong programs and services to their clients. So another topic that is a perennial favorite here at Pursuant is donor loyalty. Um, There were a couple of different resources that you found on this topic of ways that you can build on that. Donor loyalty is one of the key strategies that any nonprofit should be paying attention to as inflation continues to impact wallets and economic uncertainty continues to impact just consumer sentiment, consumer confidence. So what are some strategies specifically that are kind of very interpersonal strategies that they can leverage in order to continue to build donor loyalty? The first thing that I want to talk about from Drew Lindsay in his article, How to Strengthen Donor Loyalty, is his first point of talking with supporters and not at them. This is very critical when when you're talking about the connection you're making with your donors. So that's getting them involved in a, in a way of asking them for their opinion and learning more about their story and getting them more involved in that way, rather than just, you know, like it says, not talking at them. You want to make sure that they're involved in every step of the process. But another step that I think is really important that is mentioned is uh, transparency. Obviously, we all know as fundraisers that being transparent with your donors is also a critical tool. 
you know, making sure that they understand where their money is going, where their gift is going, making sure that they are able to be, you know, involved in that process once again. And furthermore, this is really kind of just, you just want to seek their input. You want to make sure that their opinions matter and that therefore they can be, you know, connected to your, your organization and, you know, your fundraising efforts are not just about you, but it's about them. And, you know, just sort of another really cool thing. And I think this is something that I've experienced in my, my own fundraising is literally opening your doors to your donors. So what I mean by that is invite them in, bring them into your organization, show them what you're, what's going on in the daily life of your nonprofit. I think getting them involved in that way can go a long way. And more importantly is, you know, make sure that you're treating your, your lower level donors the same as some of your high level donors. You know, you want to make sure that you're thanking them in very similar ways and making sure that even somebody who gives $100 versus $500 versus $1,000, they are being thanked and they know that their gift still matters and make sure that it's personalized and that you can keep them connected for a long time. Yeah, I really feel like that last point, it's so important because I found, I don't remember where this statistic was or this study was, but essentially it had to do with the fact that oftentimes those lower level, you know, quote, lower level donors are actually giving a larger percentage of their income than people who are mega wealthy. So those lower, you know, again, in air quotes, those lower dollar donors, even if they're just giving you $100 a year or a few dollars, you know, $20 a month, oftentimes that gift is proportionally costing them more than it would someone who who was giving you, you know, $100,000. And people want to feel that something that is actually costing them is being thanked and is approached with gratitude. And so I think rem- remembering that that even though to you that the nonprofit $100 is $100, 500 is $500, that to the donor, it means a whole lot more or it can mean a whole lot more. For sure. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. It it is really important to make sure that you show gratitude and make sure that they know that that gift really is important to the organization. Yeah. And that they are able to contribute and make an impact with that gift as well. Absolutely. I I think, you know, even in my, my own giving and donations that I've made in the past, you know, I feel like sometimes because I'm I'm not giving those major gifts that I'm not thanked properly. And, you know, the times that I have been thanked very uh, properly and had someone kind of personalize that thank you, I really did feel a lot more connected to that organization. And it continued to make, you know, I, I felt influenced to keep giving to them. Well, let's uh, round out our time together with a couple stories, just kind of driving home this idea of donor loyalty and building connection. One was a campaign called What's Your Pet's Nickname from the Best Friends Animal Society. Can you tell us a little bit more about this story? Yeah, this one's a pretty fun one. So essentially, this this story, so they're a Utah-based animal welfare nonprofit and Basically, their goal is to find homes for animals. And what they did was they tried to get their donors and also find new supporters through doing digital focus groups and online surveys. And really what they did is they put out this survey and these fun, very interactive questionnaires to people 
just asking them about their pets. So, you know, what's, what's your pet's name? What's their nickname? What parks do you take your dogs to? And what they found was that by making these very almost informal connections that with, with their supporters, that they were able to actually deepen their relationships with their supporters. They were able to, to build sort of their mid-level program through these focus groups. And I think what's kind of cool is that they made these focus groups a little bit less, you know, staunchy and, and, and by making them in more informal, they learned a lot about their, their own donors and supporters and were able to sort of uh, utilize those newfound relationships to continue to, you know, make a good, strong ask from them. And I think by making those personal connections and learning more about their donors, donors were felt more compelled to support and continue to support this organization. And last but not least, we have a, a local story, or at least local to me here in Dallas, which was Habitat for Humanities Dallas chapter is launching a really interesting and kind of cool employee benefit that's helping with a felt need right now, which is housing. Yeah. um, So I thought this was really unique and just amazing. So yeah, the Dallas area chapter of Habitat for Humanity, they launched their new employee benefit that assists with down payments and closing costs for buying a new house. So essentially they will provide a down payment and closing costs up to $13,000 in the form of a forgivable loan over a five-year term. So that's pretty amazing. And ultimately one of the reasons why they're doing this is for obvious reasons, which is, you know, the cost of living is, is expensive no matter where you live. You know, housing costs are very high, but also they, you know, they, they thought that this could ultimately attract new and new talent and retain talent. So just like most companies, you know, they offer all different types of employee benefits, but this, this new effort by Habitat for Humanity in, in Dallas really um, is very unique. And, uh, you know, Ultimately, we'll see where this goes. I would love to follow up with this story in a couple months and see what kind of applications or new employees they've they've had coming to try work for them because of this. But you know, I thought this was an amazing program to benefit employees who are you know working with this nonprofit. It's really cool. Well, and what's so cool about this story was that it goes right into a theme that we've been talking about, which is the overhead and budgeting, and that nonprofits by investing in their own employees and by investing in in their own organization can actually increase their ability and their capacity to do like more good in the community. And so if you think about it, it's like more fulfilled and housed Habitat for Humanity employees in Dallas means that there are more people to organize more house builds for the community. And it's an investment that I think will have a really, really powerful ROI in the overall mission of the organization. It's one of those things that I'm sure will pay off really well, both for just the fulfillment and the their ability to attract top talent and just provide for their people, but also to impact the community. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it really does tie into that. Most definitely investing in your your staff is really going to to really build your nonprofit and make it stronger. Another thing that I really loved about the story was 
part of the reason they were able to offer this program is because it came from a $9 million gift from Mackenzie Scott, our new favorite, our favorite philanthropist <laughs> who seems to always be in the news and making, making big strides in the community. And it's fun to see one of those little, those little parcels of blessing land in our own, our own backyard. Yeah, that's so true. I, I feel like you can't escape Mackenzie Scott's name anymore when you're, when you're looking uh, up different resources and news and in, in the philanthropic world. And I, I and it's so true. I mean, it's amazing. She's, she is everyone's, you know, new favorite philanthropist and how could you not love her? She's helping so many different causes. She's just a modern day fairy godmother. (laughs) She she really is. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, Nicholas, uh, this has been another fun conversation and I can't wait to see the October report. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave a rating and review as that helps others discover the show.